Good afternoon and welcome to Eco News, KHSU's weekly program covering environmental issues that matter most on the North Coast and our bioregion. I'm your host, George Zeminski from Friends of the Arcata Marsh, which is known as FOAM, and I'll be with you on the months that have a fifth Thursday. Don't forget, you can find this show and other shows on our audio archive page at khsu.org. My guest today is local author Sharon Levy, and we'll be talking about her new book, The Marsh Builders, The Fight for Clean Water, Wetlands, and Wildlife. Welcome, Sharon. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, it'll be nice to get a chance to sit down and have a chat with you. Our paths always cross out at the marsh, so looking forward to this. So you could just tell us a little bit about yourself. You're a local author. So so what your book is what Once Were Giants? Was that the My my first book yeah. is called Once and Future Giants and it's about ice age extinctions of big North American animals like mammoths and mastodons and saber toothed cats and what the lessons are for modern conservation. Yeah, I remember when that came out and going to a talk that you gave on that and reading oh. a borrowed copy, but I no longer have it, so I couldn't remember what the exact title was. But All right, uh, well. Anyway, and, I, and I've enjoyed your current book, and the proof copy that you sent me. So how long have you been a, a fan of the Arcata Marsh? Well, I moved here in 1994, and I just fell in love with the marsh immediately. So I, I don't know, that puts me at 20-something years. Right, yeah. And then, um, and then I know you as a volunteer. You're one of the docents and lead tours for FOAM on Saturdays and then also often for school groups. Right. And I've been doing that off and on since I moved here, too, since 94. So when did you start thinking about writing a book about the marsh? Well, when I moved here, I was working as a wildlife biologist for a consulting firm, and I was laid off in the winter. And I started doing freelance writing. And at some point, the little light bulb came on. I said, boy, this marsh is really, really cool. I should write about the marsh. And I did several magazine articles in the late 90s about the marsh. And I ended up interviewing a lot of the big players in in what was known in the 70s as the wastewater wars or the sewer wars that happened in Humboldt County. And I I tried to pitch the book idea back then in the late 90s, and the edit folks at the publishers pretty much said, Ick, we're not going to publish a book about sewage. Forget it. But <laughs> So I put it aside, did a lot of other things, but I got a contract to do this book in 2014, and I worked on it pretty intensely for a couple of years. Right. I remember the the recent effort. And then I was wondering how much of the historical stuff was things that you had already had done. Fortunately, I hung on to all my interviews that I yeah. did in the 90s. And thank goodness I did, because some people actually passed away in the meantime. Mm-hmm. And others just, you know, time moved on and they didn't remember things as well as they did yeah. back then. So I used a lot of that material. That yeah. I, oh, good. That yeah, I was wondering how the current then. stuff or the historical stuff ended up in the current book. And of course, you've spent a lot of time in the Humboldt Room. Right. Digging around in the Humboldt Room. Yeah, that's a yeah. great resource for, for local stuff. Yeah. And uh, it was kind of interesting. You start the book off talking about cholera, which is not something that I ever thought about when I was wandering around the marsh. But you make a, a good case for, you know, I guess, the, the core of it all is water pollution and disease. It's kind of led to where we are. Yeah. I've been working on this project for so long that I don't remember when all the ideas popped up. But 
I started researching the history of sewage treatment, and what came up for me was this very dramatic story of London in the mid-1800s when the Thames River, which runs through the middle of the city, was an open sewer, and it was also the source of drinking water for thousands and thousands of people. And they had terrible epidemics of cholera. And that was right a couple decades later, the germ theory of disease emerged, and people started going, oh, okay, it's this little bacterium that we can identify. But what really got them to start treating the sewage was not even these epidemics of terrible waterborne disease. It was just that the Thames stank so bad. Oh, aesthetics, actually. <laughs> the, the straw that broke the camel's back. It's yeah. kind of hardening. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and that it was just interesting to you follow the sort of the trend of cholera epidemics through time. I, I was very unaware of the scale of that, especially through Asia and how, you know, civilizations have almost fallen, you know, because of that. It's a disease that is passed. It's it's carried in human guts, mm-hmm. and they poop it out, to use a technical term. Mm-hmm. And epidemics have, I think they have shaped history in some ways. So it just kind of, as I was researching it, it occurred to me that here's this line between the cholera epidemics in the 1840s in London and the cholera epidemics that struck all the migrants in the gold rush who were heading to California they many, many of those people died of cholera. Yeah. And and so I, I kind of followed that line to get from London right. back to Arcata in the book. Right. And then of course it's in the news in Yemen and you know it's it's very much a current event to this day, unfortunately. Yeah, unfortunately. And it's it's mostly in the developing world now because here in the first world we have enough sanitation and right. sewage treatment facilities that we're protected from yeah. it. But yeah, cholera is endemic in in the Bay of Bengal and in Bangladesh and India. So there are parts of the world that very much still suffer from it. Yeah. And the other interesting part in in the the water pollution theme is that you look at some of the earlier episodes with pulp mills and some of the politics that went on with that. You know, I moved here in 1985, so I only heard the stories about how much it stank and then... Uh The one episode, I think it was 1966 or 65 in Thanksgiving when they decided to fire the plant up with a broken pipe and discharged all their wastewater directly onto the beach. And just the the vision of a wall of foam about five feet tall and a mile wide just was unbelievable. Yeah. It's mind-boggling, isn't it? Yeah. One thing that was really intriguing as I worked on this book I you know I was a kid in the 60s and a teenager in the 70s and I was aware of environmental issues cuz I came from a pretty progressive family but you you tend to just forget with time and and so especially now that we're in a time when our our president is wanting to roll back all these environmental right. protections it's good to go back and remember there's a reason why we have all these protections right. things were bad before we had yeah the case of the like the california water authority and just having all the primary polluters be the board members there you know having right. the the foxes guarding the hen house and, and, yeah, that, and how we almost find ourselves there today yeah that was very much the thing and, and back in the 70s the law that governed forestry in California was shut down. This California Supreme Court found it unconstitutional because it set up a board that was totally 
populated by people in the industry. So there's been a big shift since that time towards not just having the people who profit from right. an industry be involved in monitoring it and regulating it. Yeah. Yeah. The other semi-regional story that I thought was very interesting was in looking at the biologists that were up in the Klamath Lakes region and that was yeah. subsequently all diverted for agriculture and then some of it went up in the Dust Bowl. And just to think of what it used to be, I mean, when I was up there and looking at it, I saw all, all the farm fields, but just the stories were unbelievable how rich it was when the, the two biologists were did the initial survey. Yeah, I kind of also fell in love with those biologists, and I was unaware of them until I was researching this book. So they were two well-known wildlife photographers, and they visited the Klamath, the Upper Klamath, mm -hmm. what is now the Klamath Wildlife Refuge, in 1900. And they went camping out there, and this was before the dams had gone in, diverting all the water, and it was wild. And they spent two weeks camping out on islands that were just made up of floating masses of tule, or hardstem bulrush. And... Because they were photographers, they left behind all these beautiful black and white photos. I've got yeah. one blown up on my wall now because I love it so much. And you can see them out there on these floating islands. It's like a trampoline. You know, oh. Occasionally it gave way and they just fall in the lake. But <laughs> yeah. you, they left behind these photos of themselves sitting on the islands with all these like little gold chicks sitting on their bodies. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that, that account made me really want to seek out more information and, and research them more. And, and also kind of reminded me of some of the restoration work that's being done in Iraq for restoring the reed marshes there that were drained by Saddam Hussein. And then now they've flooded them again and how they've bounced back and... It was kind of like, wow, wouldn't that be really cool if you stopped planting potatoes and turned it back into marshes up there? Yeah, politically, yeah. That, that's a pretty tough thing to right. try to do. But it's, again, important to look back at what there was so we understand yeah. what we've traded irrigation for these incredible wild places that are probably gone forever. Yeah. And this guy, William Finley, who photographed it in 1900, he later became an Oregon State biologist and spent many years fighting to reflood the Klamath. And he's a big reason why we now have a wildlife refuge there instead of just farm fields. Right. So yeah. it's not a, not a total loss, but definitely. And I guess the the generalization about the loss of wetlands, you know, and, and I think you said nationally it's in the mid-60s, about 64% or so, but then California is at 90% or so. And, and when you drive down 101 and you just look at the, the levees that are around and all that flat land out towards old Arcata Road, and you just realize that there's a lot of pastures that used to be salt marsh. That's right. That figure of 90% of California's original wetlands being gone, a, a lot of that was the Central Valley. It's hard to even imagine because it's such a human-controlled landscape now, but yeah. it was a huge tule marsh yeah. back in the day. So. Yeah, and then, the, and then as far as the Arcata Marsh goes, the, the flip side, I know when I'm talking to people and showing them on the map, what we know as Brackish Pond was a field that had a barn in it 15 years ago. And then okay. with the McDaniel Slough Project, you know, there used to be cows wandering around up to the perimeter of the, you know, the western end of the marsh. And 
since they took the levee out, and now that's all flooded at high tides. And so it's been interesting to watch that transition of restoring wetlands. Yeah, it's it's been amazing to watch. And I, I was a little out of the loop. I was busy with other projects at the time that the Brackish Marsh was created. But it's been, after the fact, really interesting to go back and, and check every year and go, ah, aha, there's pickleweed now. Yeah. And I, I went just last week, and there was Humboldt Alice Clover growing Yeah, it's there. a great year for that. It's, it's really nice. I have mentioned that often when the restoration work's being done. They just, I believe they just finished up in the, in the Arcata Marsh. The folks from Redwood Community Action Agency were out there with the Spartina control. Oh, cool. But that involves weed whackers and a lot of noise and flying mud that some people find unsettling. But when I can tell them, it's like, well, the owl's clover is there because these folks went out with weed whackers and put in a lot of hard work. And so it's been been really nice to to have so much restoration work being done locally and then have it be readily accessible with uh, paths nearby. It's great. And I spent one day volunteering to do Spartina removal. And I just have to say, appreciate the people who do that. It makes you achy. Yeah. Uh, I'm I'm past my days of Spartina busting. Right. uh, I'm glad there's lots of young folks that are, are really putting the time in for it. And and so in your original interviews with the folks in the marsh and George Allen was was someone that you talked to quite a bit in the book. And then Bob Gearhart is still here. Well, actually, unfortunately, I missed the window to talk to George Allen. I never got to talk to him. Oh, he wasn't part of your earlier? No, he was elderly and not doing very well by the time I started working on it. I did talk several times with Bob Gearhart. So I I found out a lot about what George Allen had done in the Humboldt Room. Mm -hmm. And I, I discovered that he had spent a year in Europe studying sewage aquaculture in 1969-1970, and he wrote a report about it for the Food and Agriculture Organization. So I, I got his report. He, he was a really interesting character. Yeah, my involvement with the marsh was after he, he was already gone, but uh, had heard quite a bit about him and got to know Bob Gearhart from hanging out around the marsh so much and getting involved with foam. And, and of course, Alex Stillman is still very much involved with Friends of the Arcata Marsh. And right. So she was definitely one of the political players for this back in the 70s. Right. I, I talked to Alex. I talked to Dan Hauser and Wesley Chesbro, who were both new members of the Arcata City Council when this controversy started. And, and they kind of started the controversy. They yeah. saw the state plan for this massive regional sewage system and they said, no, nah, we don't like this idea. Yeah, in the Arcata Marsh Interpretive Center on South G Street, there's a, a corner dedicated to the background of the whole struggle to be able to create the marsh. But it's a, it's a little snapshot. So the, the chapters that you have jumping back into the, the theme of the fight throughout the course of the book are, are just make for great reading. And, and I really think that the marsh is such a beloved and used resource, but so few people know the depth of the story behind it. So I'm really excited about your book, you know, being able to uh, make people realize the fruition of all the work and sweat that yeah. went into it. Part of the reason that I was so drawn to the marsh from the get-go there's this great abundance of birds and they're flying and swimming right in front of you. You know, you don't have to go yeah. tromping through the woods searching them out. But 
it was also the story of these local folks resisting this very powerful state bureaucracy and keeping at it for years. Yeah. And finally winning out after years of struggling over it. I thought that was a really irresistible story. It's to the initial visitor, they're blown away at the wildness of it and how it's so close to town. And the interpretive center itself is built on top of a, an old plywood mill site. And everything to the west in Butcher Slough was either ag fields or from the lumber mills for storing mm -hmm. lumber. And so I really enjoy showing people the aerial photographs from 50 and 60 years ago when there wasn't a tree to be seen in the neighborhood and, you know, it was really an industrial setting that, you know, in the course of 50 years is, is now just really wonderful habitat. Right. And at the time that George Allen and Bob Gerhardt and Dan Hauser and I think Frank Klopp was in on it, too, at the time that all those folks had this inspiration to try and do wetlands as, as a way of upgrading sewage treatment here, all that area, those lumber mills were closed down. Yeah. And the old landfill that's now Mount Trashmore had just recently been capped with bay mud because it was condemned for oozing toxic things. Yeah. And uh, it, it, it had gone past being industrial to being just sort of a blighted zone. Yeah. And so they, they took this blighted zone and, and turned it into great habitat. Yeah, right right on the edge of town. That's one thing I, I've loved so much is that it's just a few minutes walk from, you know, downtown to if there's nobody else on the trail looking over your shoulder or ahead of you. It's amazing the peace of mind that like instantly you can find walking out there. It's a fabulous place. And I've, I've learned lots of bird knowledge there, too. So I guess we'd like to talk about some upcoming events to celebrate the release of your book on Friday, June 8th at the Arcata Community Center in the Senior Dining Room. We're going to have, I guess, a release party for your book, and there'll be a reception from 5 to 6 p.m., and this is in the Senior Dining Room at the Arcata Community Center on Martin Luther King Way in Arcata. And then starting at 6, Sharon will be starting a PowerPoint presentation to talk a little bit about your book. This is an event that's open to the public and free, so I really encourage all of you to come out and check it out. And then afterwards, there'll be a panel commentary with a lot of the local folks that were involved in getting the marsh started. Attending will be John Corbett, Alex Stillman, Dan Hauser, Frank Klopp, Bob Rasmussen, Dave Couch, and Wes Chesborough. That's great. I'm, I'm yeah. glad to hear all those folks can make it. Yeah. And then this is also roughly the 25th anniversary of the Marsh Interpretive Center, so we'll be celebrating that. I remember for the 20th birthday celebration that was there, they also had the, the panel with uh, a bunch of these folks, and, and it was really nice to have a reunion of a lot of the folks from the early days. I, don't, I think sometimes their paths don't cross very often anymore. And it was really nice to just sit in the room and have them all reminiscing about that. I'm really looking forward to that. I missed the 20th anniversary celebration. And from talking to all these people separately, it seems like that Sewer Warriors experience, it, it was a moment when they all came together in this big effort. And for a while, they were all comrades in arms. And then life moved on. But it, it's always really cool to get people to revisit a time like that. Yeah, and then you'll have copies of your book there, I believe, yes. signing them towards the, the second half of the reception time. 
Yeah. Well, Sue Lescu, who very graciously has organized this whole event, I, th- right. I think she wants yeah. me to sign some at the beginning and some at the end. Anyway, there'll be books we'll there and they'll be for sale. And then on the, the next day, Saturday, June 9th, you'll actually be leading the Friends of the Arcade Marsh tour that starts at the Interpretive Center on South G Street at 2 o'clock. Right. And that's one of my favorite things to do anyhow. Yeah. But this should be extra special because some of the Marsh founders are going to come along. Yeah. Well, that should, yeah, that'll make it a special one, really, really nice. Yeah. And, and the weather's supposed to be good, too, I think. All right. Let's hope. <laughs> I don't want to jinx it. Okay, so are you, what's your, going to be your next project? Do you have anything in the pipeline yet, or are you going to take a well-deserved rest? Well, I, I've been doing some reporting for science magazines, which is what I do a lot when I'm not writing books. So I, I just recently had a story come out in Undark, which is a digital magazine, and it, it was a story I really enjoyed doing that's about the fate of the Delta smelt and the fate of California's water. And, and so I'll do some more things like that. So this, the Marsh Project came about because the Clean Water Act made it illegal to be able to discharge into bays and close bodies of water. And the solution deemed by the powers that be was to build a huge regional treatment plant that would be based out on the Samoa Peninsula. Thus, they could discharge directly into the ocean. But to make that work, there was just a huge infrastructure project of running sewer pipes underneath the bay and all over from Humboldt Bay, which would be very expensive and then also require an immense amount of energy to be able to pump the sewage everywhere. This is about the time that seismic awareness was happening, and they discovered that there were faults along underneath Humboldt Bay that could lead to a ruptured pipe and also shipping coming in and out of the bay. Those folks were not very happy about having to worry about breaking a pipe with the anchor on their ship. Right. So there were arguments against it from the economic angle, too, because of the expense involved for that. Right. I, I went at the history of it from the point of view of Dan Hauser when he was elected as a Arcata City Council member in 1974. And at the first council meeting he attended, they threw all this all these documents of the planned regional sewage system in front of him, and he was overwhelmed. He didn't hadn't had any preparation for it. But the thing that struck him was that this great ring of sewer lines that they planned to build all around the bay, they were going to connect all the communities around Humboldt Bay to this theoretical plant on the Samoa Peninsula, which would have been many, many miles of sewer pipes. But they wanted to run a pipe from Arcata to Eureka, and that struck Hauser immediately because he had moved here from Orange County fleeing urban sprawl. And he knew that if you build a sewer line, you invite urban sprawl. So all that green space that we still have between Arcata and Eureka along 101, he had been fighting to protect that. And, and that was the first thing that triggered his attention. But as time went on, it became apparent that the project was really very expensive. The figures sound not that big now, but you have to account for inflation. So it, it was very expensive in 1970 dollars. And it also used a huge amount of power And this was at a time the Clean Air Act had been enacted a couple years earlier, and people knew there was a real need to conserve energy in order to minimize the air pollution that came from burning fossil fuels. 
But that wasn't incorporated into the way the Clean Water Act was being enacted in those days. And so they went for these high-tech, energy-intensive systems without thinking of other options. And the whole fight that we had here, it evolved over time. And, and the, the Arcata activists thought of the wetland concept a couple years into the fight. But wetlands for sewage treatment has really caught on all over the world. And one of its great virtues is it's powered by the sun. You don't have to mm-hmm. burn fossil fuels to do it. And pretty modest infrastructure that could have positive outcomes like the wildlife habitat that, that we have here. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great system if you can make it work. It doesn't work in, in big cities because it, it takes more space and more time right. than conventional treatment. Yeah. Arcata was just fortunate that all the land was just fallow right here to be, you know, swooped right. in and converted to what we have today. Right. As opposed to, you know, economic development. Yeah. 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 So have you been able to visit any other communities that have developed treatment marshes? Well, I've visited a number of places to look at different stories that are connected to creating marshes to clean up water pollution. And the most spectacular place I went to was this series of constructed wetlands in South Florida that were built in the 90s to capture this overload of phosphorus that was running off of farmland and running into Everglades National Park. And really, that phosphorus load was just transforming the native ecosystem in the Everglades. And so to stop this, they built more than 57,000 acres of constructed wetlands. So if you can imagine a thing like the Arcata Marsh, but a couple orders of magnitude bigger. The size of Humboldt Bay. Right. And in South yeah. Florida, so you have roseate spoonbills and wood oh, storks nice. and alligators. And, yeah. you know, very few people have heard of these. They're called stormwater treatment areas, but they're pretty spectacular. And then I, I also visited a couple other places. I went to Northwest Ohio, where there's a proposal to do large-scale wetland restoration to capture. There's a, there's a major problem in, in the western basin of Lake Erie where there are harmful algal blooms every summer, and it's fueled by nutrient loads from farm runoff because that's a big agricultural area. And so there's a guy named Bill Mitch who's one of the gurus of wetland science in North America, and he's saying, well, all this is reclaimed swamp. It used to be a thing called the Great Black Swamp before it was settled. And the best way to capture this nutrient load is to put wetlands in in strategic places. But it it was very interesting going to northwest Ohio and talking to farmers there, even the ones who are very sympathetic to conservation. The idea of really building wetlands back into the landscape was too much for them because their whole economy depends on draining this former swampland so the crops can grow. So as a society, we've really undone our wetlands on a massive scale. And I think for a lot of people, bringing them back is still a frightening idea. But I think things like the Arcata Marsh are great because they show how excellent the outcome can be. Right. Yeah. One one step backward sometimes is two or three steps forward. Yeah. So. Well, thanks so much, Sharon. It was great to get a chance to talk with you and look forward to the success of your book. Thanks very much. Enjoyed talking with you, too. Oh, and one of the things that I'd like to do for this Friends of the Arcata Marsh hosted Eco News Report is to talk about some upcoming events at the Arcata Marsh. 
Every Saturday at 8.30, the Audubon Society sponsors a tour meeting at the foot of I Street. And then on Saturday at 2 o'clock, Friends of the Arcata Marsh sponsors a tour that leaves from the Arcata Marsh Interpretive Center, which is 695 South G Street. Also coming up next month on Saturday, June 16th, Humboldt Pet Supply will be hosting a marsh cleanup. And they do a really wonderful job helping clean up with the dog waste issue out at the marsh. And they meet at the Interpretive Center parking lot at around 9.30 or 10. And then on Friday, July 6th, FOAM will be sponsoring a Marsh Amphitheater Grand Opening at 6.30 p.m. just west of the Interpretive Center at the south end of the Log Pond out at the Arcata Marsh. So this has been George Zeminski with Friends of the Arcata Marsh, and thanks for listening. If you have any questions or comments about this program, please call our listener comment line at 826-6089. If you'd like to replay this interview or share it with others, you can go to the archived programs page at khsu.org. Shows are also available now on your favorite podcast app. The Eco News Report is produced at Humboldt State University in cooperation with the North Coast Environmental Center. Join us again next week right here for the Eco News Report.